0: All right, Genesis 3, verses 6 through 24. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. To be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of, and at the, east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flowers fade away. but The word of God stands forever. Somebody pray for us uh, before we... Look at it further. Heavenly Father, these are your words. Uh, these ancient, these words that you spoke long ago, uh, you speak to us now. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, that even tonight in Elliston Chapel, right here and now, that you would be at work. That you would take these words and you would apply them to our hearts. You, that you would open up our minds that we might know, in our hearts that we might believe, that we might see you and your grace and your mercy, even in the midst of such a difficult story. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we opened up by talking about um, basically whether in real life or on, you know, many of the TV shows that I and some of you watch, crime shows, things like that, that. uh, basically the idea of an investigator going to some sort of crime scene, like a murder, right? Some sort of chaotic scene and beginning to try to unpack what happened, right? They come on a scene that's got all sorts of destruction, that's obvious, and, and trying to figure out what went so wrong here, right? And we said that really you and I ask the same questions of life all around us, the world around us and of our own hearts. We see all the, all the pain, all the misery, All the chaos, and we really wonder, what went so wrong? How are all these bad things in the world? How did it get like this? And if you were with us last week, you know that basically we answered that, uh, the the Bible answered that for us by saying essentially uh, sin, right? That sin came into the world and caused all these things. And so, um, right, we're studying this semester through the first half of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And we're saying every week that Genesis is like season one of all of life, right? That just like if you want to jump in and uh, understand a, a TV show, right? One given episode that, you know, let's season five of a show. you're gonna, If you jump in, you're going to have some questions. It's going to be hard to understand exactly what's going on. And one of the best things that you could do is to go back to season one, right? Because if you go back to the beginning, to the back story, that's where you're introduced... Uh, That's where you're introduced to everything, right? The main characters, the main themes, what's going on. And so as we want to understand ourselves and who God is and the world around us, you know, what better place for us to go than the same place, right? Back to the beginning, to Genesis. And so last week, yes, we saw that what the Bible, the Bible says that what's wrong with the world is sin. And so tonight, this is really what went wrong, part two. Basically, tonight, we're going to look at the effects of sin, the effects of sin, and so really, two main points. First, we're going to see how sin affects mankind, how sin affects us. And that's going to have 3 subpoints. you You're going to see that it affects us spiritually, relationally, and physically. And then our second main point is that we're going to see how sin affects God's grace. And we'll explain that uh, when we get there. All right, so how sin affects mankind. Point number one. So let's just take a second very briefly to say what we said last week. Really, what's the essence of sin? And basically, the essence of sin is is that mankind, originally Adam and Eve, and now you and I, everybody that has ever been, right, except one, but that all of us, we default to looking at God and thinking, I'm not so sure that he has our best interest at heart. In other words, we fundamentally mistrust God and think, think that he's holding back the good stuff from us in some form or fashion. Right? We essentially allied with evil or with Satan, the devil, right? And we decided, Adam and Eve and now us decided we can't trust God and so reject him. And so we see that sin has broken everything, really. And the first thing that it's broken is our relationship with God or it's broken us spiritually, you could say. It's affected In some sense, it's destroyed our relationship with God, at least as far as how we, our side of the equation, right? How we relate to God. And fundamentally what it's done, I guess you could say the overall effect of that first sin, which now we get by, you know, our inheritance, right? Is that that initial thought that Adam and Eve had of, I'm not so sure we can really trust God, Essentially, that gets confirmed or, or solidified, entrenched in us. And now that's just our default. We're born into it, right? That's the fundamental way we come into this world. And so what that's done, just like you see with Adam and Eve here in the story, right? It becomes part of who they are. They eat of the fruit, and what happens? Their eyes are opened, just like they hope, or, well, they hope their eyes would be opened... Satan promised their eyes would be opened, and they were, but just not exactly in the way they wanted them to be, right? Now their eyes are opened, and they realize that they're naked, that they're vulnerable, that they could be seen, right? And so what do they do? They try to cover themselves. They take fig leaves, apparently, and they sew them together, and they hide from God. So fundamentally, what happens is they... Guilt and shame enters the world, right? They feel guilty, they feel shameful, and so they cover and they hide. Does that make sense, right? It's exactly what they do. They feel guilty, they know they've done wrong, they feel shame, they know that, not just that they've done something bad, but that they are bad. And then when God's presence comes into the story, when God shows up, that fundamental thought comes in. I wasn't sure we could trust him. Now we've done something against him, and now we know we can't trust him. And so they cover up and they hide. So what does that mean for us? How do do we do that? What does that matter to us? Um, Fundamentally, the same thing is true of me and you. You can know that everybody in this room, everybody that you've ever met, fundamentally feels guilt and shame. It's one of the maybe the overriding uh, feeling, right? Everybody, let me put it this way. You know what you're really like and I know what I'm really like and I don't want anybody else to see it, nor do you, and so we cover it up, right? We all feel guilt, we all feel shame, and we don't want anybody else to see it. And so we try to cover it up somehow. So how how do you try to cover it up? What does that look like? I think one way that we can tend to try to cover up our guilt and our shame and who we really are is by trying to fix the problem, right? You try to fix it, make it like it just never was there. Uh, one of the, uh, for better or worse, one of the most fun parties that I've ever been to, my 11th, when I was in 11th grade, a friend of mine, his parents went out of town for like a week and he threw a bash. And it, I'm not saying it was right, it got out of hand, okay, just to say the least. Um, there were three holes that got put in, in various walls in his family's house, some bigger than others. And the next morning, he, he wakes up, sort of, you know, survey, now everyone's left. He sort of surveyed the damage, and he realizes he's got these three holes to fix. And so he goes to the hardware store, and he gets, you know, whatever materials he needs, and he tries to fix up two of them. And it actually kind of worked for about a week. But then they sunk in, and his parents found out. So he tried to fix it, but it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is because he doesn't have the ability to fix it, right? He didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't really know how to go about it. And I think you and I can tend to do the exact same thing, right? Whatever it is that makes you feel guilty, whatever you're ashamed of, I think fundamentally we can look at and say, okay, I'm going to fix this. I will fix this problem because it makes us feel guilty and shameful, right? And so we, we buckle down harder. We make promises, I will never do that again. We put in all sorts of, try to put in all sorts of avenues of discipline to make it happen. And now look, those things are not necessarily bad. But we do that instead of, first, going to God in repentance. In other words, going to God in our guilt and shame and saying, this is who I am. Instead, we we sort of ignore that whole concept. And we just, if if I fix it, then I won't have to worry about God or worry about, you know, anything like that. And so we buckle down harder. And we redouble our efforts. And we kick ourselves, right? We, We sort of punish ourselves. To try to whip up enough emotion so that we can fix whatever it is. But if you're like me, I know you are like me, it doesn't work. And it always, the, the hole always sort of sinks in eventually. So we can try to cover it up by fixing it. I think another way that we can try to cover ourselves is by, um, by trying to put something good over it, Right? Not really, all right, so you get it, like, I can't fix the problem, and so I'm just going to sort of put something good over the top of it so that, that God and my conscience will kind of be okay with it, right? The third hole, tried to fix to him the third one, he hung a picture over, right? It's a good idea, except mom knows that the picture doesn't go there, right? Like, <laughs> And so what do you, why is this picture, oh, right? And that was actually months later, apparently, but. <laughs> but you see the point, right? You try to put something good over it, but what's the problem? The, the problem's still there, right? What does that look like for me and you? All right, so yeah, I can't fix that one problem that I've got, even though I've tried So I'm going to cover it up with, with good stuff. I'm going to cover it up by going to RUF and going to church, and I do a Bible study, and I'm really nice to people, and I smile all the time, and I make good grades, um, I give money away, I give my time away, I volunteer, whatever it is, right? Try to cover it up. Like, if, if I got enough good stuff going on, like, eh, you know, everybody's got a little bad, right? It'll, it'll work out for me. Or maybe we just hide from God altogether, right? And really, it's a form of covering, too. But maybe you just try to hide from God and avoid Him altogether. And just sort of ignore that whole, the whole realm, Right? And maybe you just sort of throw yourself headlong into your studies and try to push that spiritual side down or into your boyfriend or girlfriend or into whatever it is, right? And we just hide from God. And instead of hiding, like we said, we need to, we actually need to stop covering, right, and, and go to God in repentance. Um, and that's not me saying, so stop sinning, Right? But we should go to God. We should repent, turn to him in our shame and in our nakedness. And we're going to talk about why we get to do that in just a few minutes. All right, so sin wrecks us spiritually, but it also wrecks us personally, right, in our relationships. Um, yeah, and in a handful of ways, we see that come out in this, uh, in this passage, right? Look, before, before God even sort of enters the scene, they cover up, right? They look at each other, and then they realize, like, they're standing there, one with the other, Adam and Eve, and they realize they're naked, and that's when they cover up first. It's actually before God sort of shows up. You know, if you remember, they were naked and unashamed, right? We said, this is what a great picture of marriage and, and a relationship, right, where you're vulnerable with one another. But now they realize, wait, you can see everything about me, and there's stuff that's gross. And so they cover right? Certainly it's not hard to see that you and I do the same things, right? Um, what do you present to the world? Right? Just look at your face. How many Facebook pictures of you are not any good, right? Like you don't put the ones that, you know, where you don't, you don't think you look your best or whatever, um, or on Instagram or whatever it is you do, right? The, you, put, you put your best face forward. We don't want people to see what we're doing. Well, yeah, we're all, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, right? We're always doing fine. We're always doing great. Because we don't want people to see the real us. But the second way it wrecks our relationships is that we blame shift and we throw other people under the bus. Right? This is pretty obvious in this passage. Sin inherently makes you and I self-centered. Right? Now Adam and Eve only care about really fundamentally themselves and the same is true of me and you. You saw what happened, how it played out. If, if this weren't true, it would be funny. Right? Um, God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? What, what's going on? And what does Adam say? It was her. It wasn't me. And he even points the finger, in a sense, back at God, right? It was the woman, right? It was, it was her, the woman that you put here with me. It's anybody but me. And he goes to Eve, Eve, what'd you do? You know, what's, what's the story? And Eve says it was it was Satan, right? It wasn't me. I mean, you almost get, like, so think about Adam, it, it, it seems like just a few minutes before, he was like singing love songs over his wife, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's like he's saying, you know, one minute, I love you. If it weren't for you, I don't know where I would be. You completely, it, it was her fault. <laughs> right? He takes bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and he cuts her off fast, Right? I mean, he throws her under the bus quick. Why? Because it can't be my fault. So what I want you to see is that sin necessarily leads to isolation. Sin makes us... So what's Adam? Adam cuts loose his wife, the only girl on the planet, right? He cuts her loose. It's not like, you you know, other fish in the sea, right? No. It's all he's got. He cuts her loose. He cuts God loose in a sense, right? You put her here. And so what is Adam after that? Alone. Right? Sin inherently leads to isolation. Right? If you think of any, right, it's in every good cop show, cop movie, whatever. When they catch the bad guy, what does the bad guy want to do? Turn on his friends, right? His friends, right? So he can get less punishment, right? I'm going to sell them out so it'll go well for me, right? And so what, I mean, you see it even in that sort of silly illustration, right? He's... More and more alone. Yeah, you can pick your sin. doesn't matter which one you pick. Pick a sin and you can see if you follow the the progression how it necessarily leads to isolation. Sin is inherently selfish and self-centered. If you have trouble telling the truth, if you misrepresent the truth, you're robbing other people of of reality and people are not going to trust you increasingly. And so more and more you you're in a sense pulling yourself away because people can't trust you. You're isolating yourself. Take something that seems to have less of a victim, right? Take a, a pornography. What's inherent what's inherently going on there? It's inherently a selfish, self-centered act, right? Uh, where you engage in some sort of fantasy uh, that that's what that goes exactly how you want it to go, right? And is that working towards? So when you get into a relationship with someone else, right? Have you, have you ingrained in yourself? Um, uh, well, let me flip that around. Can't you see how really all you've ingrained in yourself more and more is, is self-centeredness in regard to sexuality, right? Again, it doesn't matter. Every sin does it. It inherently isolates us and makes us alone. Third, we could look at... Uh, how marriage, another way that we see relationships broken here, marriage is essentially going to be a power struggle. We don't have time to talk about that. All right, so the third main way, spiritually, relationally, and physically, right? The physical world is radically affected by our sin. So mankind and creation were both built perfectly and were designed to enjoy the physical world. We're designed to create it and to work it. But essentially because of sin, I think we could say it this way, now it works us. Right, You see it all through the passage. In verse 16, um, God says to Eve that pregnancy, childbirth, child rearing is going to be painful. It's going to be hard. Um, to Adam, he says that now the ground is cursed and that basically you know, work is going to be hard. The only way you're going to be able to dig anything out of it is going to take a lot of sweat and a lot of effort. Because creation is cursed in a sense. And then again to Adam, he says eventually you're going to die. You know, from the dust you came into the dust you're going to return. And so, this explains why the world is broken. It's because of sin. Right? It explains why you have to study so hard. And even when you study hard, you still sometimes don't get all the concepts, you still don't understand it. It's why you have to grind away. I had to, it finally dawned on me after a few minutes. I had to smile as I was working on this, and I could not figure out—I could not figure out my outline, how I wanted to, you know, outline this talk. And it was just driving me nuts. And I'm scribbling stuff and erasing it and getting frustrated. And then it, it, it kind of hit me like I'm literally working on this point. Like, yeah, this is it, right? It's kind of funny, kind of sad, but that's the point, right? What's it going to be like in heaven? But but now it's not like that, right? It explains why your head aches, why people get sick and lay in bed all day. It explains why people get cancer, why people are born with medical problems. It explains why people die. It explains why you get tired, why your car breaks down, why you have a refrigerator, right? Because things move towards decay. It does, I promise, right? Now you understand, right? Things move towards decay, and we try to stop that for a little while with the refrigerator. But sin moves things towards death and decay. Alright, so that's our first point. The effects of sin. But now I want you to see how sin effects God's grace. And now look, asterisk, right? Don't freak out. What you're not hearing me say is that our sin causes God to be gracious. I'm just using that as sort of a clever, cute way to say, look how God responds to our sin. Okay? So let's look at that. How does God respond to our sin? Because again, there's a lot of problem here. And it made me think, as I was thinking about this earlier, it made me think about, you know, not long ago, Amy and I watched some uh, 9 11 documentaries, right? The whatever anniversary of that. And, you know, one of the amazing things of that is everything you see about it, right? It's just terrifying. And everything inside of you. And, and you can see it displayed in the people there, right? Every instinct is to run. right There's so much wreckage and death and destruction, and just get out of there, man, except those firemen, right? And somehow their instinct, or at least at least their will, is to see that death and destruction and say, "I'm going to march into that." And I look. That is unbelievable. It is. But what I want you to see here is that's just a little taste of what God is doing in this passage and what He's doing in history. Is that He's looking at, and not just 9-11, which is as huge as that is, He's looking at the very things that that are the root of 9-11. And every other sin and and tragedy. And what I want you to see, what we're going to unpack in just a few minutes, is that God looks at that death and destruction... And he marches into it. And he marches into it in grace. So in other words, what I want you to see, and I think this is pretty amazing, is that really there's a whole, as much problem as there is here, there's a whole lot more grace. So let's just kind of dive in and look at these. All right, first, um, we've talked, uh, we just talked about the reality of pain and suffering in the world. Right, how the, the world's broken. And you might be asking yourself, okay, but Why? Why is it like that? Why is there pain? Why would God do that? Because, look, let's be clear. God brought the pain, right? He said to Eve, now you're, uh, it, it's going to be painful to bring children into this world. He brought it. So why is that? And I want you to see that this is not God zapping people, right, like, Essentially saying like, okay, you're going to pay for that. Right? You don't trust me? Wham! Watch this. Have a little pain. See how that works out. That that's not what he's doing. But that actually he brings pain into this world because he's gracious. And look, follow me on this. Because think about what pain is. Pain is fundamentally, it's actually not a bad thing. If there are harmful things around... Pain is actually a good thing, right, that tells you this is something bad. Stay away from it, right? Pain is a reaction to bad things. I read an article about a boy who has, what's it called, congenital insensitivity to pain. So it means that, you know, very rare, but some people are born in this world and they literally cannot feel physical pain. And now at first blush you might think like that would be awesome, right? Literally feel no pain. But man, oh, it's heartbreaking to read this article. Because the parent said it's just it's just a nightmare because he can be playing and literally break his leg and have no clue and just keep running and keep playing all day. Just, and so he's just destroying his body, right? You see how pain's a good thing? You break your leg, your body says, whoa, 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 we got a problem here. You need to stop, right? Fix this. Pain's a good thing. Oh, it's hard, but he put his hand on the stove and just doesn't know it, leaning on it, right? And the stove was on. Hot coffee. Right, you get the idea. Pain is actually a good thing. It's terrible not to feel it. So look, God is being gracious to us in pain because it's like he's saying, look, Otherwise, you you cannot be content in a broken world with a broken relationship with me. You cannot be content in that because it will destroy you. And so he sends pain, right? Pain causes us to, in a sense, to recognize this is not right. It's not supposed to be this way. Things are not right in the world. In other words, it's like he won't let us ultimately be content. Ultimately, be content with our career or our marriage or the stuff we have or sex or any, you know, fill in the blank. It's like those things are designed to come up short. There's going to be pain involved because they're not meant to to save you. And so there's pain. Right? It's what the movie Inside Out is all about. Have you seen it? Inside Out, right? Sadness, joy, the whole bit. Right? It's a great movie. Um, Sadness is not, it's not only okay, right? It's okay to be sad, it's necessary, right? You have to mourn, like you have to feel the pain of this life to know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. So God is gracious, He sends pain. Um, he, secondly, He's gracious um, in that He curses Satan, right? He essentially says Satan is going to be humiliated, verse 14. Uh, third, uh, Genesis 3.15, God goes on... Right, we're getting bigger and bigger here. God says something amazing in 3.15. Over the centuries, people have called this the Proto-Evangelion or something like that, right? Essentially the first gospel. This is the first good news. The first time we get a hint of the good news. And God says that he's going to put enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her seed, her offspring, and the serpent, the seed of the serpent, Right? In other words, right, she's, she, had, she had allied herself to Satan. And God comes into this scene and he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you be on his team because it's only going to destroy you. And he says, I'm going to force a wedge where you have made a bond. And I'm not going to let that happen. And so he brings enmity. Right? He, in other words, God doesn't just let us go our own way. He steps in, he intervenes. And look, if you're thinking, but wait, I'm a believer and I still sin and I still struggle with sin, so I, I'm, I guess I'm still allied with the devil. I want you to see that that's actually evidence of the very enmity that God talked about here, right? The question is not so much if you sin, but what do you do with that sin? Are you grieved over it? Because that's evidence of the fact of the, of the enmity that God has worked in, right? The struggle is a sign of health. The fourth way, again in 3.15, it just continues to get bigger. If you notice, he goes on from talking about the offspring of the woman, right? Which, just like in English, can be either singular or plural. He goes from talking about the offspring, meaning all of, of uh, basically all that are going to believe in God, to he. He gets very specific, It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so it seems, right, or it it, it just is, that God has in mind one particular offspring. This is God promising to send the hero, to send the one, the seed of the woman, who's going to ultimately come and put to death the seed of the serpent. Right. This is the very first hint of, of Jesus Christ. Here in Genesis 3.15, it's the very first hint that Jesus is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent is going to strike his heel. And so I want you to notice that, right? Let's go back to that pain point for just a second. Do you see that God doesn't just sit aloof of the pain, but he promises the ultimate way he's going to fix it by coming himself and putting it to death it's going to involve his own pain. He marches into the, into the wreckage himself. And so even here in early in Genesis, he promises to come and fix the problem himself. He's going to take on death, he's going to defeat Satan, and he's going to save us. And look, just in case you don't believe me, I want to end with these last couple thoughts. Just in case you don't believe me, And maybe you think I'm reading too much into that. I want you to see, look at verse 20. I never noticed this until studying for this sermon. And this is awesome. Look, after God finishes handing out all these judgments, you know, pain and suffering, and it just seems like bad news, right? But I'm trying to suggest to you, right, that actually the sort of overarching theme is grace. Adam hears it too. Because look, what's the next thing that it says? Verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, great. Yeah, so what? So he named her Eve. But do you see? Adam heard it. Adam heard the grace that God was telling him. He heard, he knew, I I have destroyed the world, right? I remember what Saturday Night Live said of George Bush, right? It said like, hey, congratulations, you broke the world, right? Okay, this is Adam who literally broke the world, And he hears God's promise. He hears God's promise. And he looks at his wife. And as evidence of the fact that he heard and believed God's promise, he said, then I'm going to call her life giver. That's what the Hebrew literally means. Because he believed that God was going to send the one through her. And look, if that wasn't amazing enough, we're going to end with this. Look at verse 21. God covers them with something adequate. Right? He takes them in their shame, in their guilt, in their fear, right? Looking ridiculous. Right? They've sewed fig leaves together. Do you know how like every time you see like a figurine or a picture, right? It's very stylish, right? Like you think I could wear something like that. <laughs> Go try to sew some leaves together. <laughs> right? They looked ridiculous. Standing there in front of God, not really covering much, probably. And God takes them like that. And he covers them. He gives them adequate covering. And it's a pointer, right? To what? To the fact that you can come to God in the midst of your guilt, in the midst of your shame, and you can come to him out of hiding. And you can come, you can come drenched in your filth and say, this is me. Here I am. And he will give you covering. He'll cover you up. He'll give you real cover. What does he cover you with? Here it's animal skins, right? Which presumably means something had to die. The blood had to be shed. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a pointer to the fact that Jesus is going to come and he's going to shed his blood. Not just some animal, but the sinless son of God for you. So that you can be covered in his righteousness and not feel guilt and not feel shame because you're covered in him. That's an invitation to you. Won't you take it? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, what an amazing truth that you had offered to come and that you did come and that you offered to cover us in your blood. Lord Jesus, would we grab hold of that tonight in the faith? We ask it in your name. Amen.